Arnie, good to hear your voice again. Yeah, yeah, likewise, Steve. And uh, we're, we're just continuing to uh, talk about the different characteristics of someone uh, seeking to spark or fuel church planting movements. Now, uh-huh. just in case someone's dived in uh, for the first time and hasn't listened to the first two interviews, um, yes. just in a phrase or two, you know, we, we've covered uh, head and heart. So what, what were the key ideas in, um, in uh, getting your head in the right place and having the right heart? Sure, okay. Well, with the first one, uh, head, the idea there is, the the, the key word is knowing. So the thought is understanding and getting your head around uh, the CPM paradigm, understanding the principles, uh, understanding what the uh, book of Acts, how Jesus did things. So it's basically trying to, uh, it's, it's a bit of a cognitive thing, really, just trying to understand the paradigm and principles. Mm-hmm. The second one, heart, refers to being. So the idea is is that um, really everything we do flows out of who we are. Um, it's not a case of uh, uh, this or that, but it's it's more a case of uh, we can have all the understanding, we can have all the skills, but if our character, uh, if our heart isn't in the right place, eventually all this other good stuff won't come won't come to come to anything, won't come to fruition. So it's, it's around the being side of who we are. Okay. And uh, what's uh, what's the next characteristic that we're looking at today? Okay, the next one, uh, the third one, is hands. So the word, the key word there really is doing. So this is more around the skills, some specific uh, skills or outworking of how we go about doing CPM. Mm-hmm. So tell tell me a bit about that then about uh, about hands doing. Okay, sure thing. Well, the first thing um, that's really key in CPMs is the whole thought of finding the person or people of peace, or maybe the house of peace, uh, which in, this is found in Luke ten, where Jesus set out the disciples and he told them to go. Uh, essentially to look for people of peace. And so the thought here is um, whenever CPMs happen, that always, there are always key people that God has prepared when we call these people of peace. So these are non-Christians, hmm. people who haven't often maybe not have even heard the gospel before, um, far away from God. Um, but God has already prepared their hearts. And so that as we go, as church planters go, whatever, whatever it is, everyday people go, um, asking God and trusting God that uh, he is going to connect us with people that really are ready to receive the gospel. Um, and then from those people, uh, they, their families will often get saved or their friends, their relatives. And very often that first church will begin in the homes of these people, what we would call people of peace. And okay. if you look at I'm, what I'm Jesus just wondering, said, Grant, I know um, you've told us uh, the story of the uh, Previously, of how you found a person of peace who, in, in a really key moment, can you can you think of any other examples of you or your workers um, that would just help flesh it out for us? What what it looks like to find a person of peace? Sure. Okay. 
Um, well, um, Sydney and my case, I've told the story of how that's happened a couple of times, how we've found people at peace. Um, in terms of our workers, uh, typically what what it would look like for them is that they will uh, they'll go to an area um, and spend a lot of time in prayer. I think of a number of our guys mm-hmm. will. Uh, they'll spend maybe all morning praying. They'll spend four hours praying, and then they'll go out the door, and they'll simply just go out into a community, start looking for people, um, talking to people, uh, creating conversations with people. And um, very very often what will happen is that God will just connect them with someone who's very open mm. to their message, open to them as a person, which, again, is what you see in Luke 10, Often they will be invited back to their place. They'll talk. They'll eat, um, and um, and over time share the gospel. And they'll, they will come to Christ, and then their families will come to Christ. So that's that's a very very common story. Um, and like so a, these folks are, are strangers to them. Uh, they've met them just for the first time. Yes, that's right. Strangers the first time. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So what, what we've found is we. You don't really need lots of people at peace, uh, not not initially to begin a work. Uh, I think of another work we've got, we've just started. Um, finding the first person at peace, once you get that person um, comes to Christ and then their family comes to Christ, from there, um, the, the work can flow very quickly and, and quite, I wouldn't say necessarily easily or effortlessly because there's always effort involved, but once that first family gets saved, then they will take the gospel to their own family and friends, and straight away you'll um, begin working through people's oikoses, so their, their networks, and that way then people will quickly start getting saved. Uh, it's the first person of peace you've got to trust God for, but God will always provide someone. That's been our experience. Someone who's already prepared to accept Okay, to so accept that, that person of peace isn't... Uh your standard mode of operation for all time. It's it's the doorway into a new community or a neighbourhood. And mm. then you you, you, uh, you you work to see the gospel spread through relational networks that already exist. And um, you call those the oikos, which is the you know, New Testament word for a household, but it, it, it could also be, uh, I guess, uh, factory work, you know, co-workers or a, or a university students. It's their relational network. Sure, definitely. That, that's right. Um, an example is we've just begun to work. Um, uh, my, one of my key workers, uh, he went to a village, um, essentially just did what I, what I said, just started meeting people, talking, created a good relationship with someone, they got saved, his family got saved. And then from there, this, this, uh, the guy who got saved took um, the my, my guy to five different villages where he had friends and family, mm. shared the gospel, people got saved in those villages. So, And that happened very, very quickly. Now the plan is we will just multiply that work out where each of these um, families that have got saved will go to five new uh, families and so essentially we'll try to multiply the work every year um, we'll multiply it five times and that's simply through working through work costs but it's all started through finding a person that God has already prepared 
Okay. And um, so in, in terms of connecting in that pioneer way with, uh, with strangers initially, uh, yeah. that, the main purpose of that is, um, I mean, it's great to be sharing the gospel broadly, but the strategic purpose is, Lord, uh, who are the people you've already prepared uh, to not only receive the message, uh, but to be a bridge into uh, relation, relational worlds. Sure, sure. I think I think um, often it's trying to understand what a person of peace looks like is important. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, if you look at the scriptures, and again, and just with our own experience, a person of peace is usually um, they're open to the message, um, they're open to the messenger. And they are uh, willing to uh, introduce other people to the message and the messenger. They have some influence. So uh, my understanding is if you look at Luke 10, um, back in that day, the disciples would go into a village. And essentially they would stand, I guess, into a town and they'd stand in the square, really. And they would start proclaiming the gospel message, and people would gather, they would listen. And straight away, the person who wanted to invite them back to their home, you could straight away tell that they were a person of peace because they were open to the message and they're open to the messenger. So straight away, the disciples knew, okay, this is a person God has prepared. Um, they would they would uh, preach the gospel, proclaim the kingdom of God, heal the sick, what well, Jesus said. And Jesus said, don't move on to other places because he is already prepared that family, and from there the work would be established in that home that would spread out to that town or to that neighbouring area. Um, it was very important why they didn't they weren't just to go off and keep carrying on and finding other people. It was to work with the person that was already prepared by God. Okay, and this is quite different in, in the West uh, where we're, for a long time now, we've been taught it's 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 got to be long term with your friends and your neighbours, the quality of your life, uh, and people you know well. And now this whole way of uh, planting churches, making disciples, it's not opposed to that long term work, but sure. it's saying there is. Um, this is how the gospel spreads rapidly throughout a region uh, amongst unreached people. Uh, there's got to be a bridge, uh, and uh, you've got to go in and find the bridge or the bridges, and then yes. their role, not your role, but their role is to reach their relational worlds. Sure, yes, exactly. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. Um, I think one of the, the challenges with the long-term approach, friendship evangelism, um, one, um, I'm not so convinced that, oh, maybe it can be effective, I guess, in some state, some places where, you know, people, everyone hits a crisis, and people who come to Christ sooner or later, particularly in the West, they'll have a crisis, and so they'll turn maybe to a Christian, someone who they build a relationship with. I mean, that, that's all fair and that's all valid, but... I think many, many times uh, we can spend a lot of time with people, building friends, shown by your lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. But the people, the person may never even come to Christ. They may not even be interested in the end. Um, but there are actually people out there who would come to come to Jesus straight away 
if, if someone actually told them the message, and this is the whole idea of a person of peace, it's trying to find the people who really are now today ready to receive him, not tomorrow, not maybe next week, but today there are people there and allowing God to lead us to these people who today will accept him. And, and that they will then do the in-depth work in their community. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, because they already have the relationships. They already understand their peers, their network. Um, they they are the best person to win their own folks to Christ in whatever shape or form that looks like. So I guess what that also means, Grant, and this is again something that's sort of uh, quite different here in in the West, where we're not seeing church planning movements, um, where you are seeing multiplication happening. New believers are being mobilized pretty quickly to minister and share the gospel with others. We tend to want to protect them, draw them into our world, make sure they're mature and well taught, all of those things. But this whole model is, is uh, it, it, it mobilizes people very quickly. It does, definitely. Right, right from the start, a new believer is, is uh, taught and the value is instilled that, hey, your, um, your friends, your relatives, your family, they need to know Christ. And you can point to the scriptures. Um, the Samaritan woman very quickly went off and told people, you know, she's not exactly the ideal uh, model of a mature believer, but uh, Jesus um, straight away, you know, um, uh, when, when, he, when he shared with her, she straight away one um, brought the whole town out to see see Jesus. Um, of course, the demoniac is a story there. He straight away Jesus went and said, "Go and tell your family, your friends." Um, and then the whole of that area was ready to receive Jesus when he passed through again at a later date. So um, this kind of model very much teaches that right from the right from the start. What does the scripture say about the need to reach your family and friends? Um, Straight away, it gives people the skills, the training to quickly go and reach family and friends. The whole discipleship model isn't you must go through a whole set of series first before you mature. It's it's learning that the real key is obedience and obeying what the scriptures say is a real key. Hmm. Okay. Well, what what else needs to happen in in uh, in this whole area of hands of of doing for a okay. planning practitioner? Okay, the next thing uh, I would say is it really comes down to the model of church and the key is to, for a church planning movement, is to multiply house churches. Now, I know the term house churches can be a very loaded term in the West. Um, whenever I use that phrase, whenever I'm in the West, um, particularly from pastors, I get all kinds of reaction. And maybe there's some valid reasons for that I'm not sure but whether you want to call it house church or organic church or simple church whatever you want to call it Mm. um, basically the whole idea is a smaller group of people Um, not not the big church like we see where everyone lines up in pews and you've got the stage you've got the music and all that's okay it's it's okay there's a place I think for that but if you if you want to do a CPM that that kind of model won't work it has to be much smaller simple, reproducible model of church where almost anywhere you can have church, where you don't have to have a big budget, where it's a smaller group where leaders can be trained to lead a small group. Most people 
I think, um, not everybody, but most people can be trained to lead a small group. Very, very few people have the skills and ability to lead a large large group of thousands of people. Very few people are in that position. So a church planning movement will always be characterised by a multiplying of smaller groups, which I we call here house churches. And I think that, that's, a, that's a good description of, of, of these kind of churches. Okay. Uh, I, I think some of the concern using the phrase in the West is uh, we don't see... Um, house, many house churches that multiply. Right. And I think some of the reason for that is because, again, my, my, my experience is very limited, so maybe anyone listening into this will shoot me down in flames, but my understanding of the house church in the West is they don't have an evangelistic focus. Um, the emphasis tends to be more on... Um, uh, what's the word, quality of community maybe, depth. Um, they can be a little inward-looking. Um, that, that's not what I mean by house church. Mm-hmm. What I mean by house church is a the whole value is you're talking about quality, yes, and relationships, but also quantity in terms of we've got to win our neighbours, we've got to win our friends, and we've got to multiply ourselves out many times. Um, it, it's a very, very different, um, different thinking of church. It's... Um, it's not a case of where these churches, which I know can be in the West, um, the term disgruntled Christians comes to mind. Mm. They don't like maybe mainstream church, and so they go to a smaller church. That's not what I mean by house church. It's always outward looking. It's always winning your neighbours, your friends. It's always how can we start new churches. It's always training up new leaders to begin new churches. It's very, very different. So, so two of the characteristics, one is it's uh, simple enough and basic enough that ordinary believers can um, uh, come together and form these churches. So they're easily yes, reproduced. And then the yes. other characteristic is there's a, a very high commitment to um, sharing the gospel, making disciples and forming new new uh, simple house churches? Very much, very much. So that, that's it. Very, very strong, those values. Um, I guess I'd add another thing in there is that the house churches are not individual ones where they struggle along on their own. They're part of a larger network. So they're their own autonomous church, yes, but they're linked into a much broader network. So, for example... A work we began a number of years ago, um, just literally through one house church um, in an area. I I don't know the number now. I heard the, the guy who heads up the work, local guy now, said there's over a thousand churches now. I think mm. he doesn't know exactly how many because they multiply very quickly. But over a thousand, maybe eleven hundred or so, um, somewhere maybe around somewhere between ten and fifteen thousand believers. That's all within about eight years. It's happened. And um, they're all, they all see themselves as one church, um, yet they're all their own individual churches. So they would see themselves as part of something much, much bigger. So there's the sharing of resources, there's the sharing of training, mm. there's the sharing of input from different people, but they are their own church where they where they give financially for their own whatever they want to do, outreach for their own uh, gatherings, whatever. But a part of something much bigger. So they never feel isolated. There's always accountability. 
So that, that's also, I think, is quite different than what you typically see in the West. Okay, so there's there's freedom at the local level to take responsibility, but there's also support and accountability in, in a wider network of churches. De- definitely, yes. You must have the accountability, yes, definitely. You can't, you can't just let people go off on their own little tangent because yeah, they, they'll lose focus, they'll become too inward-looking. And, you know, you don't know what... You, you can develop all kinds of problems, so you must have accountability and oversight at a much uh, higher level, yeah. Okay, and look, we, we certainly see that in the New Testament where sometimes the word church refers to a group of people gathered in a home. Sometimes yeah. it refers to a network of groups throughout a region or a city. Uh, sure. And uh, both are, are validly, truly church, so... Okay. And I guess I want to say too, because I know people can really react to this, is that um, I myself am not opposed to a large gathering like you might see in, in a typical location somewhere in the West, where you have a stage and you have someone preaching, you have all the lights and music, and it's quite a quite a polished thing. You know, I'm not opposed to that. I enjoy that just like anyone else, but. It's always got to come back to if you want to see a CPM happen, that kind of model will not work. And so this is what I'm saying is all in the context of church planning movements. Hmm. So yeah. the building block of a church planning movement has got to be a local group of believers taking responsibility to be the church and uh, to share the gospel and make disciples. Yes, yes, but it, but it must be small and reproducible because yeah. otherwise people, leaders will very quickly feel I'm not qualified to lead 100 people, mm. 500,000. It, it's got to stay small, 15 to 20, maybe 30 people. Some of ours get up to 50, but really no more than that. Okay. Yeah. Well, what else under this heading of uh, hands? Okay. Um, there's an acronym we use. Uh, called MAWL, M-A-W-L, and that stands for Model, Assist, Watch, and Lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is really a real foundational um, uh, foundation, uh, what's the word, method, I guess, of how I do ministry. And I think we, you can see it through the way Jesus did it. You can see the way uh, Paul did it. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll talk about each of those as individual. So the first one, M, stands for model. Uh, this, this is a real key. I just I just cannot stress this enough. When I talk to people, I say you have to model what you're teaching. You can't just uh, teach it and expect people to go and do it. Very few people will go and do it. They need to be shown how to do it. And um, you see, Jesus did that with the disciples. He was always modeling until they, until he, at such a time they went and did it. When he ascended to heaven, um, the disciples knew what to do because they'd seen Jesus do it for three years. Paul very quickly um, uh, talked uh, about, I mean, one of the things he said, he said, you know, imitate me. Now, what did he mean by imitate me? Sure, imitate the lifestyle, but basically imitate what I did, how I went to do uh, ministry. Uh, you said in 2 Timothy 2.22, I think the verse is, and about passing on to others who will in turn train, teach reliable men. So it's the whole idea of, of modeling. You have to be able to model to somebody how to go and do it, model how to share the gospel, model how to disciple, 
model how to start a church, um, always take people with you when you do stuff, uh, model, model, model. You can never do too much of that. It's very, very important. Can you think of an example uh, when when uh, you've sort of um, put that into practice? And, sure, yeah. Um, sure. Um, my most effective uh, local worker who's the guy who, uh, you know, sent over a thousand churches planted. Um, uh, I led him to Christ. Straight away, I would spend time with them. I would spend something like 20 hours a week with them. Uh, we would eat together. Uh, we would do everything together. I just invested as much as I could into this one guy, and I would model everything. He would see everything I do. I'd take him um, as much as I could. I mean, he had to work, um, of course, but outside his work hours, it was always we would be doing stuff together. I'd meet for him with bre- for breakfast uh, four mornings a week. We would talk about stuff um, he would share me, see me share the gospel. He would see me pray for the sick. Um, he would uh, watch me how I started a uh, started a house church, um, and in turn, very quickly, he knew how to do stuff. And basically, he just did what I did. Um, so much so that um, he, he, I saw him. He would pray for the sick like I would pray for the mm. sick. He would place his hands on people where I pr- place my hands on people. Now. I know that might seem a bit weird, but, but that's the reality of what it is, is if you want somebody to be effective and they need a model, they need an example. Um, why why did you choose this guy? Uh, because you can't really spend that sort of time with every new disciple. So why, why this guy? Um, because I saw, first of all, he was a person of peace. Um, I saw very, very clearly that God had prepared him. Um, I saw his hunger, wanting to learn. I saw um, the power of God working him very, very quickly from the day he got saved. Uh, he led his family and his relatives to Christ very quickly. So I could see that God, that, that he was fruitful, basically. I always look for fruitful people. And I could see that very, very quickly God's hand was upon this guy. And um, sometimes he didn't develop as quickly as what I wanted. And... Um, and in all fairness, sometimes I thought, oh, gee, I don't know whether I'm spending too much time with this guy, but I listen to my wife. I always listen to your wife. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, um, she said, no, invest in this guy, invest in this guy. So I did. And it, it really paid off because he's, a, he's, an, he's an apostle. He's an extremely effective guy. And, um, and I just invested. I, I basically shaped all my time around as much as I could around this guy. I would go out of my way to spend time with this guy, modeling to him how to do life as a Christian, how to relate to people. Um, all the things I said, how to, we would study the scriptures together. We would pray together as much as I could. I would, t- I would train him and model to him how to serve Christ and how to be effective in ministry. Okay, so the whole paradigm is, is it's about spending as much time as you can with with fruitful people with key people definitely definitely spend time um with, with and i'll talk a bit more about that what that looks like about fruitful people but you have to invest into people um cpm honestly is not about um coming up with the latest program about trying to um now, sometimes I'm a bit harsh here. It's not about entertaining the saints where you try to keep people in your church because they might run down the road to the next church at the latest program. It's not about that. CPM is always about 
uh, winning, it's about discipling, it's about modelling, it's about training people to go with their family and friends to plant new churches. It's it's not about doing a whole lot of admin. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's it's not about that. And so you, if you don't model, you're not going to see a CPM happen because new believers must see an example of how to live out the Christian faith, what that practically means. Hmm. Okay. Well, what what else in this area of uh, hands doing? Uh, well, the, the next thing I've gone, that's just M. So A Oh, okay. <laughs> we jumped ahead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. A is, so this is more M for model, A for assist. Yes, A for assist. What this means is, uh, again, I'll speak from my own experience. I've got, um, I get people very early on to start having a go at um, uh, leading meetings. They watch me how to do it. Then they work beside me how to lead meetings, how to, how to train, um, how to share the faith. And again, we see this. Jesus did this with the disciples. Um, how, how to, um, uh, yeah, just to, to assist, to work alongside get people to work alongside you and give um, more responsibility to them. And you can do that really, really quickly. It's not over a long period of time. Just give them little tasks, mm. and then slowly they'll build confidence. Um, so that's assist. The next one, W, is watch. Um, I would often, uh, this basically what this means is to watch from a distance. Allow the person that you're training or the people that you're developing to, to lead stuff and to do stuff on their own, but you watch at a distance. So you sort of come and go. Uh, an example would be a good example is this is, I remember one time we were having a baptism and they wanted me to baptise the people, the new believers. I said, no, I'm not going to do the baptism. Um, I told them on the night. I knew, I, my plan was that the, the main guy that I was developing with the others, that this main guy, he would do the baptising. He'd never done it before. And so it was time to do the baptism. Oh, at the start of the meeting, we were going to do the baptism, and I said to him, look, now you're going to baptise the people tonight. And he said, I can't, oh, I can't baptise them. You need to baptise them. And I said, no, I'm not baptising them. You know how to do them. You know how to baptise. You've seen me do it enough times. Um, you do it now. And um, he said, no, no, I can't. And so I said, oh, well, I guess we're not having a baptism tonight. We'll just have to tell everyone to go home. And straight away he realised if he doesn't baptise, everyone's going home. And so he said, okay, I'll do it. And so he baptized, and he was fine, and he's been doing it ever since, you know. And um, often other times people would want me to be at meetings, and I'd say, no, I can't be at meetings because I've got something else on. Now, I didn't have anything on that night, but I just refused to go because I knew that if I was going to always be there, people would not learn to rely on the Holy Spirit, would not learn to do stuff themselves. And so that's the whole idea of watching. You watch from a distance. And then there's the, the last one is alpha leave. It means you, you just don't get involved anymore. And we Paul did this is where he, um, he, uh, he would send letters, he would send people, but he quickly moved on. And um, you need to do that because otherwise if, if the person who starts the work is always hanging around, the people never really grow into uh, really learning to trust God. The church always will depend on the church planter. Um, in fact, I had this situation just the other day a guy we used to do a lot of work with, uh, one of my fellows I trained, uh, he said, I, I, he said, oh, you know, if, I, if we hadn't left that area, then he would never have developed into the guy he is now. And um, at the time, he was always wanting me to hang around and always wanting to stay. 
But I said, no, I'm not going to be staying. I'm going to be moving on because um, it's important that he grew grew into the person that God wanted him to be in terms of his own life and his ministry. And my hanging around would have been a real detriment to the work, but also to him um, in terms of his ministry. Okay, so that's a key part of uh, doing is to model, assist, watch, then leave. Yes. What else is there? The leave? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, next thing is to spend most of your time with fruitful people. So this comes back to um, what I was talking about before. This is a very difficult one for people and the needs to, before God, I think it comes down to the individual on a scale about where they actually fit in terms of this. Some people, um, again, there's all has to be in the context of church planning movement. So this is it's all in this context. Um, the only way you will see church planning movement is to spend time with, um, with very fruitful people. Um, Jesus talked about the parable of the sower. Some will produce 30, 60, others 100-fold. I always um, try to say to people, spend as much time as you can with 100-fold people, those who are very, very fruitful. So what do you do if you find someone is not really fruitful? How do you relate to them? Um, I, I, don't, I don't write them off, and this sounds really harsh, but I don't write them off, but I spend less time with them. Um, we have to encourage people who may be not 100-fold people. We do. We have to encourage them. We have to um, show uh, you know, love towards them. But I try to feed those people in with other people who I think would be willing to spend a lot of time with them so that they are encouraged, so they get the help they need. But the bulk of my time, personally, is spent with those who are very, very fruitful. Uh, because if we don't, we can spend a lot of time with people who may not ever go and plant churches. We may spend time with people who may never win their family and friends to Christ. And um, and the goal of a church planting movement is, is always invest as much time as you can into people who are going to go do the stuff, not not just listen to what you say, but don't go do it. It's a, essentially, fruitfulness comes down to obedience. Uh, if they're obeying Christ, though, they will go and share the gospel. If they're obeying Christ, they will get into a place where they want to start a house church. And with training, you get a pretty good idea pretty quickly who wants to really go and do the stuff and, and who doesn't. So I try to spend time as much as I can just with very fruitful people. But it sounds like I'm, I'm hearing two characteristics. One, one is they're obedient, um, and the other is um, they're exceptionally fruitful. Because I imagine there, there's there's a lot of folks who are obedient and faithful, uh, yep. but the fruit of their ministry may be quite limited or um, you know just typical. But you're saying every now and again God gives you a person. Uh, who will have an exceptional impact. Uh, so look for, uh, you know, obedience and character, but also look for results. And rather than sure. just let them go thinking they're fine, you actually need to spend more time with them than you think. Uh, yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Spend as much time as you can, even if it's just with a few people, but in really invest into them. Um, because it's through these, uh, another term might be uh, super spreaders. I've heard that 
term used. You know, there are, there are just some people who, man, they will just go do the stuff. And they may not look like what we typically think of what a church planter might look like. Um, uh, who was it? Where was I? I was reading something about these church planter assessment things, which uh, seem to be pretty common in the West. I mean, man, our most fruitful people, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even get in the door with those church planter assessments. Um, our most fruitful people are simply those, some of them are really low, low educated from terrible backgrounds who don't have all the, what we would consider would be the, all the things necessary to plant a church. And they will just win their family, their friends, they will disciple people. They're just hungry to go and do this stuff. Those are the people who are not so fruitful and best into those kind of people. Mm. And it's, it sounds from what you're saying, there's, there's a window of opportunity in early on in, in, in a formative time for them. They're demonstrating obedience and fruitfulness, but, but God's still shaping something in them. And so there's a very sure. intensive period, uh, I, I'd imagine, could, could last a year or two. Um, and then beyond that, that's when you apply that mall model, model, assist, watch, and leave. So mm-hmm. while you might have a long-term relationship with them, the intensive investment from what you're saying um, has, has a time limit. Sure. Yeah, very much, very much. Because, you know, you want to get people when they're, when they're brand new believers. Um, I, I think one of our challenges is in the West is really not a lot of people come to faith. Not really. Not, not when you look at what, what's happening in the rest of the world. Sure, people come to faith, but it's nothing like in the rest of the world. And so when we choose a leader or when we choose someone who's fruitful, we tend to look at things like how long have they been believers, uh, how much Bible knowledge they know, whether they've served in this leadership position. We take believers who have been known Christ for a long time and they carry in all this presuppositions of what it means to be a Christian. Whereas here we don't do any of that. Um, we, it's like a clean slate. You know, People don't know that it's not normal to win your family and friends to Christ very quickly. They don't know that. Whereas in the West, we recognize that that's not very common. Um, here... Um, New believers don't know that it's not normal to go and plant a house church within your first year, whereas in the West, very few people would ever go do that. And so right at the start, you've got, if you like, a clean slate where you can really model and you can speak into very what I would consider life things. And so you do have to take the window of opportunity and really invest into these people and, and model to them that this is actually nor- the normal Christian life. Okay. All right, Grant, yeah. let's uh, move on. Uh, what's what's next? Um, okay. Um, actually, I want to add one more to the thing with that fruitful people. The, the, real, the key word is doers. Invest into people who are doers. Um, uh, yeah, doers. If you want to know who to invest into, look for someone who's going to go and do it. So... I don't, I don't really like to train people twice. If they haven't done it the first time, I, I don't really want to train them the second time because I figure if they haven't done it the first time, it's probably unlikely they're going to do it the second time. So look for people who are actually going to go and do the stuff. Um, um, give them small tasks to do, and you get a bit of an idea as to see if they're going to do it or not. So I'll, I'll add that bit with the fruitful bit. Okay, okay next thing. Um, lay leaders. 
um, the, uh, is really the next thing. The, be the best type of leaders for a church planning movement are lay leaders, bivocational leaders are the best. Um, not not full-time paid uh, Christian professionals, and which I'm one of them, you know, I, I'm one of them. But what we've found is that um, the people who are going to more likely see a church planning movement happen are those who are normal, everyday, common people who work a job and they uh, or the farmers in a rural context and they're leading the house church. Now, what the reason why that's best is because um, full-time workers, um, straight away if you're a full-time worker, straight away there's a, um, you have this divide between laity and clergy. And I can say that because I am one of them. I'm a, you know, I'm an ordained pastor, so I know what it, and a full-time worker, so I know this. And what happens in typical churches is that when you've got full-time workers, the expectation is that we pay this person to do the work, so they should do it. Mm. Um, the full-time worker gets the expectation that, hey, the church pays me, I better do the work, this is my job. Uh, and so you get all these kind of, um, straight away you get these bottlenecks where um, the people expect the full-time, the pastor, whoever, to do the work, and the pastor himself thinks, oh, this is my job, I've got to do it. And um, whereas in a church planning movement, you, you, you can't really do that because the idea is everyday believers should be leading house churches and can be leading house churches. So you can't have full-time workers. A church planning movement, if you've got planning 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 churches, you know, which is very common, um, often you're not going to have the money to be able to pay full-time workers. Um, and so... The idea is to train up as many people as possible, which means you've got to have lay workers. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, in the the church planning movements that you've been a part of, are there? What is the role of full time workers, uh, or or is there no place for them? No, there is, I think there is a role of full time workers, but. Um, uh, the full-time workers usually become people who become um, like itinerant, uh, itinerant, uh, more like apostles, itinerant uh, workers who will travel around training and equipping. Because often in a in a um, in a typical job, obviously people can't leave their jobs. You can't say to your boss, or if you're a farmer, you can't just leave your fields. Um, to go and do whatever, you know, you can't do that. So there is a place for full-time workers, but I would try to say that those need to be really, really limited. And that's if the churches want to have someone full-time, then they can do that. But those roles is more of at a higher level of leadership where they oversee, where they're itinerating, where they're training, um, but, but not for not for just a leader of a typical house church. They do not need to be a full-time worker. Okay, and so... Leaders who've sort of come up within this whole approach, uh, demonstrated effectiveness, now they have a wider ministry of, of opening up new areas or supporting workers in the field over, over a wide area. Uh, sure. it, it can help there to that, that they've got financial support, so they've got the freedom to travel. Um, yes. and, and pretty much like... Um, uh, Paul and Barnabas did uh, sure. in, in the book sure. of Acts and others. Hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Full-time workers do have the freedom to do that, as you said. Open new areas up to train and itinerate. But um, I said to someone the other day who I'm mentoring, they were asking this question. I said, nah, don't try, try to avoid full-time workers for as long as you can because straight away uh, you get this bottleneck. Um, in any given typical church, again, uh, use the West or even in parts of Asia where there's, the church is more established, most of the funding goes into two things. One is salaries and the other is a building. Mm-hmm. Um, church family and tries to get rid of that. Um, you have houses, so you don't have to put money into buildings. Um, money gets used into outreach as opposed to paying salaries. Um, but the only way you can do it is to do this is it comes back, it's got to be a simple reproducible model of church because when you have a simple reproducible model of churches, you don't need to worry about a building, a fancy building. And secondly, you don't need to have a full-time worker because the church is simple. Mm. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that makes sense. Okay. What, what else have we got under this heading? Okay, the next thing is um, Indigenous leaders are key for growth. Uh, growth of churches and spread of the gospel. So um, obviously a missionary is many steps removed from the from the local people. But even in, a, say, a Western context, if you're trying to, you're a middle-class person trying to reach into a very low area, you still, a lower-class socioeconomic area, you still need people from the lower uh, well, I'm not sure quite how to define this, but you don't. You need people in that particular class of people to lead their own people, um, because the person is always going to be an outsider. Uh, an example of this is, uh, uh, I lived in Australia for a few years, and uh, we were involved in a church plant. And um, uh, I wasn't leading the work, but I was just involved in it, um, in, in a lower socioeconomic area, a um, lot of drug problems, alcohol problems, violence. It was considered the lowest socioeconomic area of that city. And the guy who was leading, he was had a heart for the people. He was a great guy, but he lived outside the area, and so he would travel into the area, and then at the end of the day, he would leave and go to his living into his house outside the area, which was far nicer than the people of the area he lived in. And I remember getting alongside one of the local leaders once from the area, and he said, you know, he said, this brother, the guy leads it, he's a, he's a nice guy, he loves us, he cares for us, but he doesn't really understand us, he said. You know, he doesn't, he's never grown up here. He's really not one of us. We love him, we appreciate him, but he's not one of us. And I think that's a real key, that whole thought, he's not one of us. Um, that You can take that, whether it be in Australia, whether it be in some other Western country, whether it be where I live, you have to have the people who are, who, who are one of the people who, who to lead their own churches. They're always going to be the most effective. Um, the, the spread of the gospel will always happen quicker and more effectively when one of their own people are leading, are leading from amongst themselves. It's always the most effective way. So, Grant, moving into a certain area where we're doing everything we can to identify with the local people, uh, yeah. even if we're doing a great job of that, you're still saying that's only the first step and the, the yes. end game has got to be um, a, a movement amongst the people that you're reaching that's homegrown and your job's not yes. done if... If you're just fully identified with your community, 
Uh, your job is done when, from within the community itself, there are local leaders who are moving this thing forward. Definitely, yeah. Mm. You can try to be as much as the people as you like, but but you're never going to be one of them. That's, that's just the reality. You're not you're not one of them, and everybody knows you're not one of them. Um, you know, I've lived in this country for well for a long time, but I'm always treated as a foreign guest. Um, mm. The, the, the story of, um, like I just said about when I was in Australia there, the, the, the brother, the, the, the guy is the pastor, and he'd been involved with the poor, uh, sorry, that's not the right, low socioeconomic people, with very troubled families for, for decades, literally, but he was never one, he could never be one of them because that's not his background. He hadn't grown up in that context. So this principle applies whether you're in my situation as a missionary or whether you're in... Um, living in the West, whoever you're trying to reach, um, the outsider, and this can be either culturally or socioeconomically, they can start the work, but as soon as possible, there must be local indigenous folks, folks mm. from within those groups you're reaching, raised up to begin leading their own people. Very, yeah. very important. And that could be true if, if I was a city guy going to a rural centre or a yes. middle middle aged guy trying to reach young adults. Um, yep. I need to do the hard work of um, bridging into their world, but um, yep. that's only the step towards local leaders who are taking responsibility. That's right. Yes. Mm. Now you can you can plant a church as an outsider. That's that's really different. You can plant a church, but. And I think this is, I keep bringing this up because it's really important to consider if you're doing church planning movements where you're aiming for hundreds or thousands of churches, that will only ever happen for indigenous leaders. But you can plant a church as an outsider, that's no worries, and people yeah. will still love you, but it won't spread, it won't grow to be a church planning movement. Because it's, it's revolving around you, dependent on you, and it's sure. not fully homegrown. It's not fully homegrown. Any kind of church planting movement, there's certain characteristics, and there's a lot of stuff out there. David Garrison, of course, has got some good stuff. I know you've got stuff on your blog, Steve. But indigenous leaders is always is always a common characteristic, and that will look different in different situations, but that's always a common theme, yeah. Okay. Uh, what else have we got under the, the hands heading? Sure. Um... I guess really the last thing, and this is to do with leadership training, um, is what I'd probably want to bring out. Um, we do all kinds of leadership trainings, but the most effective is to try to do as much leadership training as on the job as possible. So, um, uh, not not this this goes against maybe a typical model of where people go to a seminary or a Bible college or whatever. Um, uh, there's a place for those, uh, I guess, but in a church planning movement, you can't really take people out of their environment to, to place them in somewhere for a year or two years or three years um, because. Straight away, you remove your, your your best leaders, your most fruitful workers, and, and the movement is not going to grow. Um, it'll stall. And so the idea is to try to do as much training on, on the job as possible. So in our case, we, we have a number of different ways we do training. Um, 
Uh, we do on the job, so that's the whole idea of modeling. You model how to how to lead and you train people while you're doing it. Uh, the second thing would be we would have, say, like uh, one-day uh, trainings, uh, either workshops or seminars. We do that. Um, we will have uh, weekend gatherings, uh, so we pull people into a location for a weekend. That's, that's, that's great. Uh, we might do one-week trainings um, where people will come for a week. Um, and then we've done it uh, in one situation. Uh, we had three months trainings where we, uh, those were for the leaders of the whole movement. So that's at a much higher level. Um, I've been involved in some Bible school stuff for a year, but I'm, I'm really not for that. Um, I, I don't like to see anything more than, say, three months if possible because it removes people from too long away from their, away from their environment. The best thing is if you can... Um, sort of if you want to do training as you go, like pull people in and, and for a short while and then they go back and really only do, um, I guess a phrase I've heard used is just-in-time training where people don't really need to know a whole lot of stuff in advance. They just really need to know what's necessary for the next step. And so we will train in stages. Um, so brand new leaders, we just train them what they need to know um, initially, some basic foundational stuff. And then maybe in six months' time, we'll pull them in for the next stage. And then six months after that, pull them in for the next stage. So people don't need to be taught everything in advance. It's not really necessary in our experience. So you still committed to uh, training and equipping and to teaching, but you want to see that happen um, over longer periods of time in an ongoing way and you want to invest that training in people who are committed uh, to follow through, to obey, to lead by doing. Definitely, yes. And in fact, we will only train people who are doing it. So um, you have to be doing it before you get any training um, because otherwise you can invest time training people who may never never ever go and do the stuff. And it's a waste of their time. It's a waste of our time. Um, so you've got to actually be doing the stuff before we train you. That, that's very important. And um, typically you, you talked about pulling people in uh, do you mean to a central location or do you mean we pull them in in their region and, and, and take the training to them? Uh, yes, sorry, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, we, we, we do it where they are, not, not into some central region, um, like into either the nearest town or the nearest city, but it's really where they are. Um, Sometimes it'll be done uh, in a village context. It'll be done in the village, and that can work too, but it can be a bit, little bit crazy because of village lifestyle. But really the best place is into a location that's not too far from where they are so that they don't have to travel a long way so that you can get as many people there as possible. Um, that, that tends to be what, what we do. Well, that uh, sort of finishes out our, our focus on uh, doing or on, on the hands side of the equation. Next time we're going to be yeah. talking about the house, about relating. But I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, if someone's listening to this and they sort of feel like, wow, this is uh, a, a lot to take in or where do I begin? You know, what, mm. what would your be, advice be in terms of someone saying, well, how do I get started um, 
with this, mm. uh, you know, with doing. Okay. I think I think a lot of times, um, yeah, it can sound overwhelming, particularly when you're starting out. And we've only learned all this over many years of experience. Um, but I think if I was to start again, um, I would probably watch very carefully what... I'd look at my calendar for the week, and I would really focus on what I was going to stop doing. Um, mm-hmm. It's very important. So I'd look and say, okay, if I look at my week, how much time am I really spending in terms of, of particular, uh, really a few areas? One, winning the lost. How much am I actually spending winning the lost? Second is how much time am I training in terms of t- training other people to win the lost? How much time am I training people to start uh, house churches or small groups, or whatever that looks like in their context? And I'd really invest my time into those things. The most effective CPM practitioners are those who are themselves modelling winning the loss and two, training others to win the loss and to start groups. Um, really, the rest of it you can put off to the side. Um, now, I know for some things, some people are already committed to stuff, but I would try to give as much of the other stuff, admin stuff, as much as this other stuff, to other people. And if you really want a CPM see a CPM happen, you really have to be doing high-value activities. Um, I have a list, a, a questions I ask people that I'm responsible for in terms of supervising, and it's very pointed questions, and it, you can see how people spend their time. And so that's what I guess what I'd say first up is try to get rid of stuff that doesn't, doesn't see people coming to Christ and try to spend as much time training and investing in others, the doers. And once you've figured out who those who are trained, after you've trained those who are doing it, then spend the time amongst the people who are very, very fruitful. That's what I would say. Um, Now, if you go and do that, that's going to upset a lot of people because all of a sudden you've got all these people who you no longer hang out with. Well, you have to sort of try to work around that one. I know it's tough, but that's just the reality. You've got to somehow work around that one. Uh, the second thing is you've got lots of other pressures. You might have all kinds of denominational pressures. You might have pressures from your leadership that you're supposed to be doing this or that. Well, again, it comes down to making some really, really hard calls. Um, yeah, only People are only going to get what they aim for. And if you want a CPM, you have to only do high-value activities. Otherwise, it's, you're unlikely to see a CPM happen. So that would be one of the main things. I would, that, that would probably be what I would suggest. Well, thank you, Grant, uh, Barney, for that, and um, <laughs> appreciate. Oh, you let yeah, you let slip, mate. <laughs> appreciate your uh, your your wisdom and uh, and input as always. So um, we'll look forward next time to talking about uh, uh, the paradigm of the house of relating, and uh, sure. well, yeah, catch you then. Good. Okay, Steve. Bye. Bye.